Well, if you do have a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open it to John chapter 19. Uh, we have been in the Gospel of John for a long time now, and for the last couple of weeks, we have been focusing or zeroing in on the events of Good Friday. So the last half of John chapter 18 and all of John chapter 19 is taken up with what happened on Good Friday. So we've already looked at the trial of Jesus. Uh, We looked last week at the sentence that Jesus received from Pilate. And today we're going to look at the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, when we hear that word crucifixion, uh, we ought to know that it is and it was a horrific word and a horrific practice. Crucifixion was designed to kill only after the victim had endured the maximum possible suffering. Crosses were designed to produce a slow and excruciating death to those who hung on them and to produce terror in everyone who saw them. So Cicero was a Roman statesman. He lived in the first century B.C., Here's what he had to say about crucifixion. He said, it is a crime to put a Roman citizen in chains. It is an enormity to flog one, sheer murder to slay one. What then shall I say of crucifixion? It is impossible to find the word for such an abomination. I mean, that's how it was thought of, even at the time. On another occasion, Cicero said this. He said, let the very mention of the cross be far removed not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind and his ears. So crux is the Latin word for cross. We use that word now to talk about something that's crucial or the very center point of something. But that word crux in ancient times was considered a swear word. You did not mention this in polite company. So no one talked about it then, and no one likes to talk about it now. But be that as it may, it is important for us to think about the nature of the death that Jesus died, his death on the cross, his crucifixion. So let's look now at our passage. We're in John 19, and we're going to look at verses 17 to 37. I'm going to pick it up in verse 16. It says there, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. 
When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to his, to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Then verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken, and again another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Well, as we think about this passage, uh, I think one thing that becomes clear as you read through the New Testament and as you read the gospel accounts especially, uh, is how much emphasis they place on the cross, but how little detail they give to the physical horrors of the cross. And that is especially striking here in John. I mean, we get lots of detail about what happened before Jesus was put on the cross, He was mocked, he was flogged, he was beaten, he was made to carry the beam of his own cross. Soldiers gamble for his clothing. There's some detail about what happens after he dies on the cross, that the soldiers come to break his legs, but he's already dead, so they don't do that. But apart from the note about Jesus thirsting, there's not much said about the physical horror of the cross. Now, there is another kind of horror that Jesus endured on the cross, and we will zoom in on on that a little bit on Good Friday, but I think it's worth just noting this. So if you've seen like Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, then you know that the main emphasis is on the kind of physical suffering Jesus endured on the cross. And it is good for us to know that Jesus endured physical suffering, agony as he hung on the cross. But the focus of the New Testament in general and the focus of this passage in particular is on the significance of Jesus' death on the cross. Since that is the case, we need to ask, well, what does this passage teach us? What are we supposed to understand from this event, from Jesus' crucifixion? And as I see it, there are five things we ought to understand about Jesus from this passage. The first one is... That Jesus is our crucified Lord. So verses 16 to 18 say, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. So what is the significance of John telling us that Jesus was crucified between two other individuals? 
Well, part of it is that this is part of the historical record, but I think there's more than that. So all through these last few chapters that we've been studying in the Gospel of John, John has been making allusions and references to the Messianic prophecy that's found in Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, We noted that two weeks ago with the substitutionary aspect of Jesus' death. We noted it last week with Jesus' silence before Pilate. But the final verse of Isaiah chapter 53 says this, Therefore, I will divide a portion or divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And we should note that Isaiah prophesied both that the Messiah would be numbered among the transgressors and that he would make intercession for the transgressors. And Jesus' crucifixion between these two others demonstrates exactly that. C.S. Lewis once referred to the cross as the diagram of love. I think that is a great description of what we see here. The cross of Jesus between two criminals. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a pastor and Bible teacher in Philadelphia and New York in the 1900s. He was a bit of a pioneer when it came to radio ministry. And he was once visited by the captain of the Mauritania, which was the largest sailing vessel or passenger vessel on the waters at that time. The captain sailed, said that he sailed the Atlantic 23 times a year and he would pick up Barnhouse's radio sermons when he was near the Boston Harbor. So on this occasion, he had 24 hours in New York and he sought out the famous Bible teacher. When he met Dr. Barnhouse, Barnhouse was quite straightforward and asked the captain if he was born again. The captain said, well, that's actually why I came to see you. I don't know. Dr. Barnhouse then led the man to one of the classrooms where there was a chalkboard. And on that chalkboard, he drew three crosses. Under the first and the third cross, he drew the word or he wrote the word in. And under the cross in the middle, he wrote the words not in. He then asked the captain, do you understand what I mean when I say that those men who died with Jesus died with sin within them? The captain replied, yes, and I know that Christ did not have sin within him. Then over the first and the third cross, Dr. Barnhouse wrote the word on, and he asked the captain if he knew what he meant or what that meant. When he hesitated, Dr. Barnhouse explained by asking, well, have you ever run a red light? Captain said, yes, yes, of course I have. And Barnhouse asked him, well, did you get caught? And he said, no, I I didn't. Dr. Barnhouse explained the difference like this. In running that red light, you had sin in you. Had you been caught, you would have had sin on you. That is, you would have had to pay the penalty for your sin. That is what those two thieves were experiencing. They were experiencing the rightful penalty for their sin. The sin was on them. Then he wrote another on over the cross in the middle and explained that while there was no sin in Jesus, sin was laid on him. 
Now, we should remember, the Gospel of Luke adds this detail. It says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Dr. Barnhouse then took the chalk and he crossed out the on written over the first cross and drew an arrow to the middle cross and said, this man's sins rested on Jesus by virtue of his faith. And then he turned to the captain and said, what about you? And then holding back tears, the captain said, well, by the grace of God, I am like that first man. See, the cross is the diagram of love. It's a demonstration that Jesus took our sin upon himself. That's the message of the gospel. The apostle Paul would later say it like this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what the cross demonstrates. Jesus is our crucified Lord. The second thing we discover about Jesus here, and that is that Jesus is our universal king. So look now at verses 19 to 22. And those verses say, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place was where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So those who were crucified would walk a long and torturous route to the place of their execution. And what would happen is they would take a placard with the charge against this individual and either they would place it around the person's neck so that everyone could see this is what he's being hung for or one of the soldiers would carry a pole with that placard on it so everyone would know this is the crime this person has committed. This is what they've done. That placard was then attached to the cross so that everyone who passed by, and they did this in public places, here it says near the city, that everyone who passed by would know the charges against this person and would then be persuaded not to follow their course. When it came to Jesus, Pilate made the sign to read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, John tells us that placard was written in Aramaic, It was written in Latin, and it was written in Greek. And the reason the charge was written in those three languages was because they represented the common language throughout the Roman Empire. So Aramaic was the language that was in common use in Judea. Latin was the official language of the Roman military. And Greek was the lingua franca, or or the common language of the day throughout the empire. 
And Pilate's decision to write what he wrote and to write it in all three languages uh, was serving his own ends, right? He, he was happy to kind of pay back the Jews for the position they had placed him in. But also it was written in the three languages so that everyone, regardless of the language that they spoke, would see this sign. Every segment of the population, regardless of the language they spoke, would understand. It served his ends, but at another level, Pilate's actions were actually serving God's ends. So one of the themes that we've seen in the Gospel of John that's been running through it is the universal nature of the salvation Jesus brings, that he is not just the Savior of Israel. So the most famous Bible verse of all time is John chapter 3.16. Many of you know that verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved the world. In John chapter 4, there's this woman from Samaria who comes to put her faith in Jesus, then goes back to her hometown and she shares that good news with everyone who lived there. They then go and meet with Jesus, and here's their response. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. In John chapter 10, Jesus says this to the Jews. He says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus did not come to establish a new national religion for the nation of Israel. Jesus came to be the savior of the world. He is our universal king. Third thing we see here is that Jesus is our long-awaited Messiah. And we see this in verses 23 and 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Now, I mentioned some of this last week, but it's important to note that the death of Jesus in this manner was not accidental, but the plan of God from before the foundation of the world. Now, here the Roman soldiers divide up Jesus' clothing. It was, it was customary. It was often the case that there were four soldiers. They probably divided up the four parts of Jesus' clothing, his outer garment, his sandals, his belt, and his head covering. But when they came to his undergarment, this tunic, it was of one piece. And rather than tear it and divide it amongst themselves, they gambled for it by casting lots. This means Jesus would have been naked or virtually naked as he hung on the cross, just to add to the shame of the whole thing. Now, as I mentioned last week, the soldiers casting lots for Jesus' clothing was fulfilling specific Old Testament prophecy. And John highlights that for us. He says, this was to fulfill the scripture, which says. Several commentators have made the observation that John does this with far greater frequency 
towards the end of his gospel. Now, we've been studying the gospel of John for a long time, or maybe you've read it before. If you read the gospel of John, you'll find that there are lots of allusions made to the Old Testament. But in the early part of John, there are very few examples of him saying anything like this. This was to fulfill the scripture, which said, it's very different when you read the Gospel of Matthew, for instance. If you look at the, just the first two chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, you will find that as it describes the events surrounding Jesus' birth, you will find that five times it will say something like, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet or something along those lines. John doesn't do that very often. Until now. But why does he do it now? Well, the answer seems to be that he wants to make it crystal clear that the events surrounding the death of Jesus were not unfortunate circumstances, but the fulfillment of God's plan. So you have to remember what it is like to hear the gospel or read the gospel for the very first time. As you read these events or as they witness them, it would be easy to say, wait, This is supposed to be God's Messiah. I mean, how can this be? How could God let that happen to his chosen one? He must not be in control. And what we need to know is that this was God's plan from the beginning of time. I was encouraged by a tweet this week. That tweet simply said, God is still good even when you don't understand. God is still faithful even when it doesn't make sense. God still has a plan even when you can't see it. God is still in control even when it looks like chaos. God is still near even when you can't feel him. God is still God. That's actually what John is helping us understand here. Even as Jesus hangs on the cross, God is still God. God is still in control. This is his plan. Now, the specific scripture that's being fulfilled here is is from Psalm 22. Verse 18 of that psalm says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. In reality, the entirety of Psalm 22 is messianic. Today we refer to it as a messianic psalm. It pointed forward toward the Christ or the Messiah who was to come, toward the suffering of the Messiah. And I would just encourage you just on a a personal level this week to take some time to read through Psalm 22 and just make note of all the connections it makes with Jesus. Make that part of your reading during Holy Week. The thing I'm trying to draw your attention to is that Jesus is our long-awaited Messiah. He was the one Israel had been waiting for, the one who would suffer for the nation. He is the one the Old Testament scriptures pointed to. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan. Fourth thing we learn about Jesus here is that Jesus is our loving Savior. Uh, verses 25 to 27 present uh, really a, a touching scene that takes place near the cross. It says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. 
Now, you've probably noticed it before, but there's a reference here to the disciple Jesus loved. There's actually four references to this individual in the Gospel of John. So in John 13, in what we refer to as the Last Supper, we read this. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Uh, Later in the Gospel of John, when Mary discovers uh, that the tomb is empty, Jesus is no longer there, uh, we read this. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, And said to him, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they've laid him. And then after Jesus is is raised and and has instructions for his disciples, Peter has questions. John 21, it says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had also leaned back against him during the supper. And it said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And then right at the end of John's gospel, we find this note just a couple verses later. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. So when you take all of those references together and when you piece them together with the information we find in the other gospels, it becomes clear that the disciple whom Jesus loved was John. And he was the one that wrote this gospel. The, the, promise, the pro- process of elimination leads you to John. But, but that's not really my point, that John wrote this gospel. The question is, why does John refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved? I mean, was he saying, look, you know, I know there were 12 disciples, but I'm the one. Jesus actually loved, like he cared about me more than the others. Is that what he's saying? Well, I think far from seeing this as a bit of arrogance on John's part, we ought to see this really as the testimony of a man who at the very core of his being was struck by the fact that God loved him. And what John was really saying was along the lines of what the hymn writer John Newton would later write, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. See, the most important thing John could say about himself is that he was loved by Jesus. He was the disciple Jesus loved. And in fact, the most important thing you or I could say about ourselves is that we are loved by Jesus. See, John isn't just saying this about himself, that he was loved by Jesus and others weren't. John would later write the letter that we refer to as 1 John. I want you to listen to the way he addressed the recipients of that letter. In chapter 2, he says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment. In chapter 3, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. In chapter 4, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Later in that chapter, he says, Beloved, let us love one another. And then near the end of that chapter, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us. So John had a lot of information. He wanted to communicate to the recipients of that letter, but the thing that undergirded all of it, the thing that they needed to know above all else, is that they're loved. They are the beloved of God. They're loved by Jesus. And that's the thing we ought to know as we look at the cross. 
This is so important. I remember being at a men's event one time where one of the speakers said, you know, you can tell when you meet her when a wife knows that she is loved by her husband. But there's, there's a kind of confidence, there's a kind of security that comes from knowing that someone loves you deeply. And I would say just by way of observation, you can tell when a child is from a home where they are loved deeply. I don't mean a, a spoiled child. You can, you can tell that too, right? But I mean a child who knows. They have the security. They know that their parents love them. It's demonstrable. They know they're loved unconditionally. How much more is that true for those who know beyond a shadow of a doubt they are loved by God? That God loved them enough to send his only son to die for their sins. Jesus is our loving Savior. And there's another demonstration of Jesus' love in these verses. I mean, he's enduring all the physical horrors, the torture of hanging on the cross. And yet he looks at his, his mother and he looks at John and he says to his, to his mom, behold your son. And he says to John, behold your mother. So we don't read anything about Joseph after the early part of Jesus' life. It's a safe assumption that Mary was a widow at this point. And even in his death, Jesus expresses his love by making sure she will be provided for. Jesus is our loving Savior. Final thing we see here is that Jesus is our Passover lamb. So I've already mentioned this in the lead up to this passage, but this is a theme that John wants to make sure we don't miss. So I'm going to bypass verses 28 to 30 for now because we're going to come back to them on Good Friday But look closely now at verses 31 to 37. And what we're told there, it says, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So John gives us some historical detail about crucifixion in general, and and this Jesus crucifixion in particular. The normal Roman practice was to leave crucified men and women on the cross until they died. And sometimes that process took days. Uh, Death by crucifixion was really death by asphyxiation. And the reason the victims survived so long was because they would naturally push against the, the, the cross with their feet as a way to keep their chest cavity open. And that would prolong their death. They couldn't help but doing so because of the pain. Breaking a person's legs would prevent them from doing that. And there's actually lots of historical correspondence that the Romans often did that. They would smash a victim's legs with an iron mallet. It was a practice called curifragium. 
Now, the Jews come to Pilate and they say, would you do that with these individuals? It's, you know, this is the season we're in. It's a Sabbath day. Like, take them off the cross, break their legs. And their request was granted. But when the soldiers came to Jesus' cross, they found he's already dead. And this fulfilled another specific Old Testament prophecy. This one also found in in Psalm 22, where it says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. But the point now is not just about fulfilled prophecy. We have to understand why was it so important for John to point out that the bones of Jesus were not broken? Well, the answer is found in the Old Testament instructions concerning the Passover sacrifice. So we find those instructions in Exodus chapter 12. Here's what it says there. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. We read those same instructions in Numbers chapter 9 where it says, They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break any of its bones according to all the statutes. For the Passover they shall keep it. You know, sometimes when a church celebrates the Lord's Supper, the person leading will say something like, This bread represents Jesus' body broken for you, or the broken bread represents Jesus' broken body. That is actually not true. Now, I'm not just being nitpicky about that. The reason we under Jesus' body was his bones were not broken. Jesus is our perfect, spotless, without defect, no broken bones, Passover lamb. He is without blemish. Now, everything I've said to you so far is true. It's important that we understand Jesus is our crucified Lord, that Jesus is our universal King, that Jesus is our long-awaited Messiah, that Jesus is our loving Savior, and that Jesus is our Passover lamb. But there is something we shouldn't miss in this passage. In fact, if we miss this, we miss the whole thing. Notice what John says in verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness... His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. See, John wrote all of this down, not, to, not just so that we would add to our intellectual understanding about Jesus. John wrote all of this down so that we would believe that we would place our trust in Jesus. Now, I intentionally used the word our in all the points of my outline. Jesus is our crucified Lord. Jesus is our universal King. Jesus is our long-awaited Messiah. Jesus is our loving Savior. Jesus is our Passover lamb. The, the, The question, though, is, is Jesus your Lord? Is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your Messiah? Is Jesus your savior? Is Jesus your Passover lamb? Have you placed your faith in him? Have you put your trust in him?
the question for every one of us is what have we done with Jesus? Now, I know that there are sometimes people come, they have questions still. And they, they, they understand this, but there's, there's questions. I mean, how, how firm, how certain do I have to be about all of this? Now, we've been talking about Jesus as our Passover lamb. And I remember being tremendously helped in my understanding of this by an illustration that was shared by Don Carson when he preached at Willingdon. It was a number of years ago, but it stuck with me. And he was talking about the Passover and he said this. Picture two Jews by the names Smith and Brown. Remarkably Jewish names. The day before the first Passover, having a little discussion in the land of Goshen. And Smith says to Brown, are you a little nervous about what's going to happen tonight? And Brown says, well, God told us what he was going to do or what we needed to do through his servant Moses. You don't need to be nervous. Haven't you slaughtered the lamb and daubed the two doorposts with blood and put blood on the lintel? Haven't you done that? I mean, you're already packed to go. You're going to eat the whole Passover meal with your whole family. Well, of course I've done that. I'm not stupid. But it's still pretty scary when you think about all the things that have happened around here lately. Flies and a river turning to blood. It's pretty awful. And now there's a threat of the firstborn being killed. It's all right for you. You've got three sons. I've only got one and I love my Charlie. And the angel of death is passing through tonight. I know what God says and I've put the blood there, but it's still pretty scary. I'll be glad when this night is over. And the other one responds, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. Well, that night, the angel of death swept through the land. Then he asked the question, which one lost his son? And the answer, of course, is neither. See, because death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercise, but on the ground of the blood of the lamb, that they put their trust. They, they did what God said to do and put their trust in that Passover lamb and that sacrifice. And that is the same thing John calls us to do here. He writes these, this so that we might believe. And we've seen that to believe is to put our trust in Jesus. So have you trusted Jesus as your Savior and as your Passover lamb? Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word, which teaches us. We thank you for your spirit, who speaks to us, convicts us, encourages us. We thank you above all things for what Jesus has done for us, Lord. We thank you for his sacrifice on our behalf. And as we think about him as Lord and King and Messiah and Savior, and sacrifice, God, we pray we would be stirred in our affections for, for him. We pray that we would live a life of gratitude in response to that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.